I read a while back about a construction worker who was injured on the job, and he uh, applied for workman's comp and insurance, and they sent his request back, his form back, wanting some more explanation of his injuries. And so he wrote this letter to the insurance company explaining to them a little more detail of the cause of his injury on the work site. And this is what he wrote. Dear sirs, I am writing in response to your request for additional information. In block number three of the accident reporting form, I put trying to do the job alone as the cause of my accident. You said in your letter that I should explain more fully, and I trust that the following details will be sufficient. I am a bricklayer by trade. On the day of the accident, I was working alone on the roof of a new six-story building. When I completed the work, I discovered that I had 500 pounds of bricks left over. Rather than carry the bricks down by hand, I decided to lower them in a barrel by using a pulley, which fortunately was attached to the side of the building at the sixth floor. Securing the rope at ground level, I went up to the roof, swung the barrel out, and loaded the bricks into it. Then I went back to the ground, untied the rope, and holding it tight to ensure a slow descent of the 500 pounds of bricks. Now you will note in block number 11 of the accident reporting form that I weigh 135 pounds. (laughs) Due to my surprise of being jerked off the ground suddenly, I lost my presence of mind and forgot to let go of the rope. Needless to say, I proceeded at a rather rapid rate up the side of the building. In the vicinity somewhere around the third floor, I met the barrel coming down. This explains the fractured skull and broken collarbone. Slowed only slightly, I continued my rapid ascent not stopping until the fingers of my right hand were two knuckles deep into the pulley. Fortunately, by this time, I had regained my presence of mind and was able to hold tightly to the rope in spite of my pain. At approximately the same time, however, the barrel of bricks hit the ground, and the bottom broke out of the barrel. Devoid of the weight of the bricks, the barrel now weighed approximately 50 pounds. I refer to you again to my weight in the accident reporting form, block number 11. As you might imagine, I began a rapid descent down the side of the six-story building. In the vicinity again, somewhere around the third floor, I met the barrel coming up this time. This accounted for the two fractured ankles and lacerations on my legs and lower body. The encounter with the barrel slowed me enough to lessen my injuries when I fell onto the pile of bricks. And fortunately, only three vertebrae were cracked. I'm sorry to report, however, that as I lay there on the bricks in pain, unable to stand, and watching the empty barrel six stories above me, I again lost my presence of mind and let go of the rope. 
Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, certainly I'm not sure anybody would survive that, but you ever feel like that is the description of your day, your week, your month, your year, where it just seems like life has hits you like a 500-pound barrel of bricks? Um, Well, the Bible has some encouragement for us that have certainly felt that way or maybe feeling that way. And I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 3. Psalm 3. And the title of the message this morning is Trusting God When Life is Falling Apart. Trusting God When Life is Falling Apart. And as you're turning to Psalm 3, before we look at it, let me just give you a few introductory, uh, helpful remarks to kind of put it in context a little bit. Psalm 3 introduces us to a series of firsts uh, in and throughout the entire Psalms. In Psalm 3, it is the first Psalm that has a superscription that you'll see right perhaps in your Bibles right below or right uh, above rather verse 1 where it will say a Psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. The heading gives you an indication that that's, that's a, a little indication of that phrase gives you an idea of when David wrote this psalm. It's the first psalm to be called a psalm. It is the first psalm that identifies its author. David is the author. And it's the first psalm, as we noted, to tell us the occasion of why David penned these words of Psalm 3, why he wrote. David wrote this psalm, these eight verses, when he fled from his son Absalom. This is a psalm that is uh, in a category, for those of you that uh, a little more studious, uh, a song's a song of lament, to lament. It's, it's a psalm, maybe in our vernacular, that's singing the blues. <laughs> that makes a little more sense to, to us. We know what singing the blues is, lifting sorrows when life is falling apart. This is what David writes in this psalm. David's world is falling apart, and he pens these words that we're going to look at this morning. Psalm 3 not only teaches us as Christians, uh, having the benefit of, of uh, reading this and enjoying this and benefiting it, it not only teaches us how to respond when our world is falling apart, it teaches us how to live in the midst of a world or situations that are falling apart, and it teaches us how to pray. It teaches us how, as Christians, we can pray and hopefully gives us the confidence that no matter how bad it seems, no matter how bad it seems, it can always be worse. Now, sometimes we don't think that's the case, but let's let Psalm 3 counsel us. Can we do that? That's the wonderful thing about having the Word of God. Aren't you thankful for the Word of God? And I hope that the Word of God uh, transitions out of your car into your home when you get home on Sunday. 
Uh, it always bothers me. You ever go to Walmart or Target and you see a Bible tossed in the back and the sun in that Florida uh, heat, uh, you know, just curls it open. And, and I assume if they're like most American Christians, they have more than one Bible. I get that. But there's something precious about the Word of God. I remember when I was over in the Ukraine a couple of times teaching and how the Christians there, and I'm sure in the DR and other places they do this as well, but I remember in the Ukraine how their copy of the Scriptures was precious, and they often carried it in a Ziploc bag because it was, it was precious to them. And I hope that we have the, the same attitude of the preciousness of God's Word, that here we are, we can listen in. We don't have to dial an 800 number for a psychic hotline. Remember those, when those were the thing? We don't have to tap into another source. We can listen to the very words that God inspired David to pen, and we can allow the Holy Spirit to take those words and be counsel to us, to be salve for our soul. And that's the wonderful blessing of God's Word. So today we're going to look at Psalm 3 and unpack it by just noting three principles for the Christian when we feel that our life is falling apart. Notice, first of all, that the Christian brings their complaint to the Lord. The Christian brings their complaint to the Lord. I mentioned that this psalm actually is set in a historical context, okay? There was a, there was a situation, there was a reason why David penned these words. There was something going on. We won't take time to look at it because in and itself would be too long, but you may want to make a note if you're taking notes or you probably have it in the margin somewhere of your, your Bible. But in 2 Samuel chapter 13 through chapter 18 gives the account of what David was experiencing when he penned under the inspiration of the Spirit, these words. I'm going to summarize uh, what's going on here, but I would encourage you sometime today or this week, go back and read that and then read back Psalm 3, and I think it'll be much more meaningful. Here's what's going on. I mentioned that David, when he wrote these words, he is fleeing. Yes, the king of Israel is running, and he is running from one of his sons, by the name of Absalom. David had many sons, and unfortunately, David disobeyed the word of the Lord. It had many wives that God never sanctioned. Polygamy, contrary to what people want to... Polygamy was never sanctioned by God. Never. Multiple wives was never sanctioned by God. Remember, and Jim, we were talking about this today. Remember, remember the principle, when you read the Bible... And you ask yourself, is it prescriptive or is it descriptive? When something is descriptive, that's just describing the situation. Here's what's happening. Here's the situation. Prescriptive said, now go and do likewise. Go and follow this precept, okay? So I'm describing the context of why David was in this mess because he had you talk about a dysfunctional family. Some of us think we came through poster, poster families of dysfunctional families. 
But let me tell you something. David had a dysfunctional family. Just read, read his story, his life. And so here's the context of what's going on, of why he penned these words. David's son, another son, this is Absalom chasing him, but another son by the name of Amnon had raped his half-sister Tamar. That's what's going on there. That's describing the situation. And in defense of his sister's honor, another brother, I believe from a different wife, in order to protect his sister's honor, killed his half-brother, Amnon. Sounds like an episode of Dynasty, doesn't it? All right? And then Absalom started an insurrection, a rebellion against his father, David, and had a lot of people that supported him in doing this. Because of Absalom's charisma, because of his natural giftings and abilities, uh, he was uh, shrewd, he was very well respected, he was, you know, if uh, he was living today, he would have been on People's Ma- People magazine of one of the sexiest men alive, okay? I mean, he was the guy, right? David's getting old. He's at, maybe out of his game. David has lost some credibility and respect, as I'm sure you're aware of David's own issues and sin. So Absalom took, takes the occasion, and perhaps because David was not going to respond, Absalom took matters into his own hands and took care of his half-brother who assaulted his sister Tamar. And as a result of Absalom's rebellion, wanting to himself become king over Israel, he was going to challenge David. And as a result of Absalom being able to rally a lot of people against David, David has no choice but to flee Jerusalem. And so it was during this exile, it's during this period that David, as we see is noted here by that heading, that these words David wrote. You with me? Okay, that that helps there, hopefully. Psalm 3, we read about the king of Israel who has the blues, and that's an understatement. The one who reigned, who led an international peace, who reigned over the dynasty of Israel, um, that he himself now is running from his own people that is being led by his own son. The man, the Bible says, is a man after God's own heart. A lot of people that don't know much about David remember that. He was a man after God's own heart. Was at a place, listen, was at a place where he felt like not only was his world and life falling apart, but he felt like maybe God had turned his back and had just abandoned David. Sometimes we feel like that. It doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It doesn't mean you've lost your salvation. But there are times when things come at us or come at our children, and we question God, where are you? 
Have you forgotten me? Have you abandoned me? And so I want you to kind of be able to put yourself a little bit in this psalm. And so the Christian brings their complaint to the Lord, as we're going to look at in just a moment in verses 1 and 2, because David brought his complaints to the Lord. If you look in verses 1 and 2, verse 1 rather, you'll see that three different times the word many should be on your screen. Many. There's three times the word many. Many are my foes. Many are rising against me and many in verse verse 2. In other words, there's an overwhelming sense that things are hopeless. You ever been there? I have. You ever been in a place where you just felt like, I don't see any any light at the end of the tunnel. In fact, the light I might see at the end of the tunnel probably is a train coming at me. But notice in verse 1 that David, in his reminding us that the Christian can bring their complaint to the Lord, David brings his complaint to the Lord, and he told the Lord in verse 1, what his enemies were doing, as if God didn't know. But he told God what his enemies were doing. He says, O Lord, how many are my foes, my enemies? I mean, you would think it would be enough that one of David's own flesh and blood sons, Absalom, was turning against him and become one of his enemies. But now, many of those who served in David's government, who served in the kingdom, who, you know, adored David, now they have turned their back and have sided with his son. The people David knew, the people David loved, the people David trusted, hello, betrayed him. You ever been betrayed by somebody? Everywhere he looked, friends had become enemies, and he felt surrounded. And this certainly can happen to us. Life can bring us all to a place where we are surrounded, it seems, not necessarily by evil people, but circumstances and situations that are against us. People that you know, you trust, that you love, that you worked with, that you helped get a job that you help finance, now they're your enemy. Now they're saying you're the problem of their life. Not a pleasant place. But notice also in verse 1, he says, many are rising against me. You know, David was a military man, wasn't he? That's military language where he says, Lord, I am outnumbered. I am overwhelmed. I am outnumbered. The numbers were growing more and more. I mean, Absalom's friends on his Facebook now was just clicking like crazy. And David's was descending, all right? All right, now some of you have to be reminded there was no, okay, there's no Facebook. But it gives you an idea that David just feels like everybody is abandoning ship. And what does David do? And he reminds us that he complains to the Lord. Listen, you know, God invites us to be real with him, doesn't he? He invites us. He knows our heart. And he invites us to be real. I mean, he says, God, 
I am outnumbered. This is an overwhelming situation. So not only did he tell what his enemies were doing, but in verse 2, he told the Lord what his enemies were saying. Sometimes that's as bad as people against you as what they're putting on Facebook, what they're putting and telling about your, your life and what rumors and what things they are spreading. David's heart was broken by what his enemies were doing to him, but his heart was broken by what he heard they were saying about him. Look at verse 2. He said, many are saying of my soul, many, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. Selah means, I mean, there's many things that Selah people believe it means, but often it, it just pause, ponder, contemplate, think. Or, as Austin reminded us, chew the cud. Remember, right? Chew on this, all right? That's the message translation for Selah. No, I don't know if it is or not. I've seen people, and even my own life, and some of you have been here seven years, go through some really difficult situations. Situations where you look maybe at a person or a family and you say, you know, only God, only God, only a miracle can get them out of that situation. But I've never seen anyone, and I've never felt it, even though there were moments where I thought, you know what, that's just too big even for God. That's hopelessness. That's despair. That's what causes people to contemplate ending their life where you feel that there is no hope. Spurgeon said, it is the most bitter of all afflictions to be led to fear that there is no help for us in God. You know, it may be one thing for you to feel that your mother, your brother, your aunt, your uncle, your neighbor have abandoned you, but I tell you, when you reach the place, and there are people, unfortunately, that, that have reached this place where you feel that even God himself has abandoned you. I tell you, that's a, that's a terrible place to be. And it certainly is not the testimony of the Word of God. Verse 2, it says, Many are saying, the word on the street, God can't even help him. This man that God raised up, heart for God, ha, ha, ha. Many are saying, there's no help for him. But David brought his complaint to the Lord. He was real. And I tell you, when you get in those situations, that's where you'll find the difference between that relationship and that religious way that you, that you treat God. You know, even people in healthy, vibrant American Christianity still have a very religious way because we, you know, and this is something that in a couple of weeks uh, or a week from this Wednesday, not this Wednesday, that, that American gospel addresses is because one of the, the, the cancers in our culture 
where we have taken Christianity because we are so consumer-driven, what's in it for me? So when God stops sending me all the goodies and presents and I, and I, because I treat him like a bellhop, then I just say, you know what? God's abandoned me. See, you know, in Romans, what is it, Romans 3, where it says, none seek after God? Remember that? You say, well, what are you talking about? I know a lot of people that are seeking God. There's a lot of seekers. We have a whole movement called seeker churches. They're not seeking God. They're seeking the stuff that they want God to bring them. The last thing that we want as sinners is God. That's why God needs to change our hearts and turn us from enemies into family. That's free. So where do you go when life is falling apart? The Bible says, and I think it's Proverbs 18.24, that there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Where do you go? A Christian is never without hope. A Christian that is anchored in Jesus Christ, has one that will never leave us nor forsake us. There's not a hell to, using figuratively, there's not a pit of hell in this life of situations too far down that God cannot reach us. And don't ever, moms, dads, grandparents, never, ever, ever, ever stop praying for that prodigal in your life. There was a time in my life, people wrote me off. Some people in high school I used to love going back to and visiting, seeing some of my teachers, and they're like, you're doing what now? You're like a pastor? Because that was like the total opposite of what, you know. I'll spare you the, the details. David reminds us, Christians, that we can bring our complaints to the Lord. But notice, secondly, in Psalm 3, the Christian must place their confidence in the Lord. The Christian must place their confidence in the Lord. In the opening verses, verses 1 and 2 that we looked at, David is complaining to God. I use that word complaining about his enemies, what they're doing to him, what they're saying about him. But in verses 3 through 6, and we'll look at it in just a moment, David shifts his focus. Don't miss that. When you read the psalm, a psalm, read it slowly. Contemplate. The reason that Selah is there is just to kind of pause. Think about what you just read. Contemplate. Okay? Chew on it. And so, the only sure way to face and overcome life when everything seems to be falling apart around us, we seem to have everybody leaving us, abandoning us, we can't depend on anybody, is when we remind ourselves, where is my confidence? You know, James 1, remember James 1, says, don't be, and this is the, the TCKV version. You'll get that in a minute. Is that rain? Wow, sunny through those windows. When trials pile on you like those bricks, James says, be of good cheer. Like, what? That's the last thing I want. That's the last thing I want to do is be of good cheer. 
He says, because it's in those stresses, it's in those crises, it's in those bricks falling on your head that will test the muster. It will test the foundation. It will test the difference between relationship with God and religion with God. You see, there's something about stressing something that reveals the strength. I've given this illustration multiple times because it just, to me, is, is that when they build a bridge, before they ever let cars and people travel across that bridge, they intentionally stress the bridge beyond what it was built to hold. Why? Because they want to reveal the flaws. They want to reveal, they want to determine the integrity of that structure. So by stressing it, and they begin to see a crack, or they begin to see something that happens better then than during rush hour traffic for them to find that out. Stress can be helpful, as much as we hate the thought of that. And so the Christian is reminded by David, just as David did, where he pivots in putting his confidence in the Lord. James Montgomery Boyce, a Bible teacher who's with the Lord now and in his commentary on Psalm 3, makes this statement. When a believer, listen to this, when a believer gazes too long at his enemies, the force that is arrayed against him or her seems to grow in size until it appears to be overwhelming. But when they turn their mind, their thoughts to God, and see God in his true beauty and strength and sovereignty, the enemies shrink to much more manageable proportions. Look full into his wonderful face, and the things of this world will do what? Grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You see, the reason oftentimes where life feels overwhelming and we feel that it's falling apart is because we are so consumed with the, what is it, with the trees that we fail to step back and see the God of the forest. And to step back and see, you know, I've, I've said this and I think it's worth repeating, not because I said it, but because I'm reminded of it, which isn't always safe if I'm reminded of something I've learned. Sometimes not everything that I'm reminded of shouldn't be said, right? <clears throat> Joseph, you remember at the end of, uh, what are you laughing about? I see you smirking over there. Uh, you remember Joseph at the end of Genesis, uh, you know, when he revealed himself to his brothers and said, I am Joseph. He told everybody to leave, you know, when he reveals himself. And, and it says that the cry, the anguish could be heard throughout the palace. And he says, and I'm, par- I'm kind of consolidating, he says that what you to his brothers meant for evil, God intended 
for good. Remember that? I don't think he got that because he read some theological treatise the night before. I don't think he got that when he was reading his devotionals that morning. That was a moment God inspired his brain and revealed to him and saw his circumstance through the lens of the beauty and sovereignty of God. He acknowledged what you did was evil. He might have been, you know, when you read that, you almost read this going back and forth like he's struggling with something. You know what I think he was struggling with? Just me. Reading between the white space a little bit. That's where all good heresies built, right? I think he was, if he was human, he was struggling between, I want to I wipe these guys out. I want to kill these guys. He may have been rehearsing in his mind and the bitterness, but in that moment, God gave him the eyes of a bigger purpose and a bigger picture. Philippians 1.12 is another example. I don't, it's not on the screen. But you remember Paul is in prison? I've, I've said this illustration many times. Paul's in prison when he writes the letter of Philippi. And it's in chapter 1, verse 12, that instead of him griping and complaining at how God let him down, you know what he says? He says, all these things that have happened to me. What's he talking about? Being in prison. He can't preach the gospel. He can't do his apostle thing, right? He said, all these things that have happened to me have actually advanced the gospel. You see, Paul understood that his life is subjected to the sovereign will and purposes of God, even if it means Paul is sidelined. God has a bigger thing going on than just what's happening with you. So maybe, and sometimes we won't ever find this out in this life. Most of the stuff we probably won't. But where is our confidence? Our confidence is saying, not that God, you have given me the whole thing listed out and figured out, but my confidence is in what and who I know. We talk about Job a lot. And when you, you know, Job, you get about a world falling apart. Don't we always use Job as our example? And when you read Job, he's got some friends that are, you know, took an internet course on counseling and think they could give him some advice and whatever, right? But you read Job, and he's all over the map. But towards the end of the book, he just comes to this realization that though he slay me, yet, yet, boy, I can, you can preach a whole sermon just on the word yet. Though he slay me, yet I will serve him. You see, you don't get to the yet unless God gives you that understanding. Not God didn't say, now Job... Let me tell you what's been going on behind the scenes. Job never knows anything. He doesn't know anything. I mean, you know, if you and I are going through trials and circumstances like Job, 
maybe in a lesser degree, I hope, it would be helpful for God just to pull us aside and say, hey, I just want you to know, okay, here's what's going on, here's the end game. Okay, I can go back in, right? I can, I can hang in there. You know when it's hard to walk in faith and trust? It's when you're walking in the dark. That's what the end of Habakkuk is all about. Remember that? Though the fig tree doesn't blossom. In other words, when there's nothing, nothing to to verify my faith, I worship the Lord. You want to know real faith? It isn't naming and claiming it. Real faith is believing in God when you've got nothing to hang it on. But you do. Because you know God. And that's why little understanding of God, little thoughts of God. But you begin to dive in to the depth of who God is. And you begin to understand and allow God to teach you in His Word and read not just the Word, which is primary always, but you read people who've walked in much deeper waters with God and you read what they write about God. And you begin to understand, oh my God, you're so little in my head. I need need a bigger vision of God. That's where this confidence is. That's verse 3. He says his confidence is in who the Lord is. Look at verse 3. But you, O Lord, I like the but you. He went from all what his enemies are doing and saying, and then he pivots, verse 3, but you, O Lord, and he says three things. You're a shield, you're my glory, and you're the lifter of my head. Look at this. The Lord is my shield. The Lord is my shield. God is a shield to those who trust him. You know what a shield is? A shield is that round or square, whatever it is. It's an instrument of a warrior that, that holds it in a battle to deflect arrows or swords or spears that uh, when you're fighting with the other hand. Some of those swords are, and also the shields they were used were, were extremely heavy, you know? The problem is, is a shield, in that sense, is only as good as what it's being held in front of you. It doesn't help you from behind. But what does the word say? He is a shield. He's got me covered. Whatever that insurance company is, they, you know, they stole it from God. God has got you covered. He is a shield about me. What about those things I don't know about? It doesn't matter. God is a shield about you. That's why this past year... There have been some some that have allowed, or it maybe just say it that it's 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 kind of revealed in in all that's gone on that maybe I can't trust God when there's a pandemic. Listen, get the shot, don't get the shot. That's between you and God, okay? I just I've just learned the hard way. Leave that alone. All right? That's between you and God, all right? There's not a heaven or hell issue on that shot. So just stop it. Okay? Just stop it. Okay? 
But you know what? You can get the shot down at Lakeland Hospital and get hit by a car coming out 10 minutes after you've had your cookie or whatever it is they do to, you know, or you, so they can tell you you can go now. There's no guarantee except the shield that surrounds me. God protects me in pandemics, out of pandemics, in places where I don't know what's going on around me, but I'm not going to live in fear. I'm not going to live in just, you know, just a paranoia and think that if I lock myself in my house, I'll be safe and choke on a chicken bone in your own house. God is my shield about me. And then it says that he is my glory. Don't miss this in verse 3. Now, this is the same word that glory is used for the glory of God. It speaks of dignity and honor. David is saying here, and don't miss this, Remember what's going on. That's the reason I spent so much time belaboring the context. David is saying here that his sense of identity is not in king because what's he doing? He's fled. His self-worth can't be in who he is in the natural, but his identity, his worth is who he is in God. It's rooted in God. Being banished from his throne and exiled from his city by his own son dishonored David. But David says, that is not where my honor and glory can be rooted in. My glory is in the Lord. David declares that his honor was not in his throne. It wasn't in the city named after him. His subjects, his armies, his riches, his identity and worth and value and significance is in the Lord. You may be low on the world standards, but my friend, if you're in Christ, God has you pictured already seated in the heavenlies. Do you see that? You see, we get our identity, men especially, in what we do, where we work, how much we earn. David said before it was coined, he said, I am somebody. Not because I'm king, but because I belong to the king. You are somebody, not because of where you work. God could shut that down tomorrow. Not where you live. Fire can shut that down today. You see, those are temporal things. But my identity, my worth, is in who I belong to. And then he says, and this goes with that, not only is the Lord my shield, my glory, it says that he is the lifter of my head. And this won't be on the screen. In 2 Samuel 15.30, it says that David, in this situation, fled to the Mount of Olives, weeping, barefoot, and with his head covered. 
Think about that. King David fleeing because his son is after him and all the traitors. He's weeping, he's barefoot, and his head is covered. The grief, the pain, the shame caused David to cover his head. You ever seen, you know, when guys are arrested, you know, and they've got the the video of them doing the, what do they call it, the perp walk, right? How many of them have trying to put something over their face? Like, we don't know who you are because we're going to see your picture on the Chiron for eight hours, you know, like, why? Because there's shame. There's shame. David had his head covered. But he says, but the Lord is what? You ever be talking to somebody, maybe a a child, and they're just looking down and you just take their chin and lift their head? Look at me. Look at me. I love you. That will never change. Oh, I may spank you and be mad as fire at you, but I'm your daddy, and I love you. And you will never, ever, ever be without a daddy, a home, my protection. You know, what am I doing? I lifted the head. David says, the Lord is the lifter of my head. Some of you need the Lord to lift your head. In the ancient world, subjects would bow before a monarch as he judged their case. If the monarch sided with the subject, or sided rather against the subject, as the subject is bowed before him, and the monarch, the king, was against him, he would put his foot on their neck to express condemnation. But if the monarch favored the subject, while that subject's head is bowed, the monarch would take his hand and lift him up to vindicate him and give him that acceptance before all. Isn't that a great picture that the Lord is the lifter of my head? You may be shamed because of sins, committed by you, against you. You may be shamed by circumstances, whatever, but my friend, the Lord is the dignity and the lifter of your head. It's your worth of what God says about you. Many may be your foes. Many may be talking against you. But there's only one opinion that matters, and that's where we put our confidence. And David says, not only do I have confidence in who God is, but I have confidence in what God has done. Verse 4, he answers prayer. He said, I cried aloud to the Lord, and what did the Lord do? Are you all awake? Come on, this is a little interaction here. He did what? He answered. Answered me from his holy hill. On my phone, and sometimes, hopefully they know better by now. They know what I do for a living. But on my phone, I have it on silent, where it... I won't get calls. But there are certain people that can override that if they call me. My wife and my children. I'm always available. 
God always is available. Always answers. He's never too busy. Never too busy. He answers prayer. And notice the fervency. It says he cried out to the Lord. David wasn't writing and reciting some formalized these and thou type of... He cried out to the Lord. He's in anguish. He's in pain. And he said, the Lord answered me from his holy hill. Spurgeon said again, we need not fear. Listen, we need not fear a frowning world while we rejoice in a prayer-hearing God. But he says in verse 5, not only does God answer prayer, but God sustains. He says, I lay down and slept. You know, when you're going through turmoil, the one thing that bothers you or you can't do is what? Sleep. You know the worst nights that I have sleep? Saturdays. Right, Sherry? Worst night. Feel like I slept two hours. That's every night. What am I doing? I'm rehearsing, going over there. Right? No, it's not because I'm in stress or turmoil. It's just the way it is. He wasn't pacing the floor. He said, I went to sleep with all this going on, and I woke again. Why? Because the Lord sustained me. Turn your Bibles it won't be, uh, I don't have it because I didn't think about it till a little before I came in here. But turn in your Bibles over to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy 4. Turn in your Bibles, scroll in your Bibles, whatever it is you do. But look in your Bibles. That's why you should bring something to engage. I thought of the Apostle Paul. How God sustained the Apostle Paul. 2 Timothy is the last letter in the Bible. It may not be the the last letter ever written, but it's the last letter that God inspired to be included in the canon of Scripture that we have a record of. It's the last letter that Paul uh, wrote that that we have access to. It's towards the end of his life. Church history tells us that eventually Paul was put on trial in Rome and was executed, possibly beheaded. And so he is in prison. Philippians, when he wrote the Philippian letter, it was more like house arrest. This is a few years later. Now he's in the deepest of the prisons in Rome. And notice how he ends. Hold on to that thought about the Lord sustaining me. And let me pick it up in verse 9, okay? And he's just writing some kind of final thoughts here. He's writing to, here's a a mystery, 2 Timothy, he's writing to who? Oh, y'all are sharp today. Okay, good, good. All right? All right, I'm just playing with you. He says, Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas an individual that was part of his group. Demas, in love with this present world, has abandoned me, deserted me, and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. 
Luke alone is with me. Timothy, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus. And when you come, by the way, bring the cloak or my coat that I left with Carpus at Troas and also the books. And above all, the parchments, the scriptures. Verse 14, Alexander the Carp- coppersmith, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. You be aware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. Now look at this, verse 16. At my first defense, at my first defense, no one, no one came to stand by me. But, what does it say? All deserted me. All abandoned me. But verse 17. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened or sustained me. Do you see that? Listen. Everybody may walk off and leave you. But like Paul whose friends, compatriots, people that served alongside of him, where'd they go? Went all AWOL, most of them. No one by himself. He can't even get those Roman Christians to make him a coat. He's got to tell Timothy to bring him his coat. Hello? But he says, but God stood with me. Verse 6, God not only sustains us, verse 5, but God relieves fear. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Fear, unfortunately, has held a lot of people hostage this past year. David says, I will not be afraid I will not be afraid. Why? Because he knew where his confidence was. And the last principle, we can bring our complaint to the Lord. We must place our confidence in the Lord. But notice thirdly, the Christian must give their conflict to the Lord. Psalm 3, as I said, is a prayer. But what's interesting is, It's not until verse 7 and 8 that David actually prays, makes a request. He brings his complaint, he reiterates where his confidence is, but it's in these last two verses where he gives the Lord the conflict. Give God the, here's the problem, here's what's going going wrong, God. Verse 7, God will fight for you. What What does he say? He says, arise, O Lord. That's not a, now I lay me down to sleep kind of prayer. That's not a little recited prayer at dinner time. That is a prayer out of utter desperation 
to, that is like, a, that's a military cry. That's Psalm 68, verse 1, let God arise and his enemies be scattered. My friend, <laughs> there's a time when all you can do is ask, is not ask, but cry in a loud voice when your child and you're seeing them in a situation where the doctors say there is no hope. You don't lay by, you don't sit by their bed saying, now lay me down to sleep, may the Lord my, you don't pray these little, you know what you do? You cry unto the Lord with desperation. You see, one of my worries as somebody that loves theology is it makes us a bunch of eggheads. True theology is doxology. You know what doxology is? It's worship. If your knowledge of God doesn't increase your passion for God, get a new theology book. Something's wrong. And there's times in which your religious controls don't work. And you just have to cry, arise, oh God, I need you. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. My uncle John Jimenez, who went to be with the Lord many years ago, for 18, 19 years, was a heroin addict. God miraculously saved him in a little Pentecostal mission in the Bronx, New York. Got out of, been in, he could rattle off all six prisons where he served. And God miraculously saved him, delivered him from drugs, went on to plant and pastor a great church, do a lot of things. But he always would tell the story about when he and some of his friends were living in this rehab-type house, and they were out somewhere, uh, somewhere in Pennsylvania, and somehow this dog got loose. Now, these are guys from Bronx, okay? I don't know how many dogs are running, but... They're out in the country, and some wild dog is running after you. Probably, you know, and they did what? Probably, they started running. Ran as hard as they could back to the house with this big Rottweiler, Doberman, chasing after them. And just when they got to the door, the dog leaped up to bite them, and the dog didn't have any teeth. <laughs> True. They were like, you get out of here, you you know? Listen, God has busted the teeth of the devil. He has taken the devil and defeated him at the cross. Isn't that what Romans 8 is all about? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is right now interceding for us. You know what's interesting when you read Psalm 8? And then he says Psalm 8. Notice how it concludes. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. And there's that Selah. Chew on that. Think about that. It's interesting how David, where does he start out in verse 1? Many are those who are against me. God, hello, 
Me. You see what I'm going through? Where does he end? Not on self-focus, but on God-focus, where he says, salvation, my salvation, belongs to the Lord. Our prayer, and what these psalms, they're called God's handbook for the heart, because they really express a lot of what we go through. God can handle our cries. He can handle our complaints. But we learn where our confidence is. And my conflict, God, I'm just going to leave it in your hands. I'm going to put it in your hands. My watch, the watchful care that you provide over me. And we begin to say, maybe my problems are all the same. But you know what? God, God is my hope and strength. Before we leave, I want to read you one quick little story about a man by the name of Mr. Yates. Mr. Yates owned a, a farm in Texas. The Great Depression came and he was having trouble keeping up with the payments on his farm. And the bank began to press this Mr. Yates to uh, give up his farm, sell it, do something with him, or, or they're going to face or he'll face foreclosure. Three weeks were left before the bank was going to foreclose on it, and a man knocked on Mr. Yates' door, and he worked for an oil company, and he asked Mr. Yates if he would sell his company a lease to drill on his farm for oil. You kind of predict where this is going. Yates knew that he was going to lose the farm anyway, so he decided, well, it wouldn't hurt. And that oil company did drill, and it hit a gusher that produced 80-plus barrels of oil a day. Mr. Yates went from about losing everything in poverty and became a multi-millionaire. Now, here's the question. When did Mr. Yates become a millionaire? When the company struck oil? Well... No, he was a millionaire the moment he bought the farm. He just didn't know it. He didn't know what he was sitting on. And I read that and I thought, you know, that's the way we are as Christians. God, every, Ephesians 1 says that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And some of us do not know who we are and what we have access to. In Christ. Let the Psalms work on our hearts. Create a warmth and heart for God. And let us begin to say, God, my heart has become dull and cold and regimented and routine. But God, let your book, the Psalms, God, give me that heart. Give me that heart that David, at the moment when his world was falling absolutely apart and there didn't seem to be any hope, he says, salvation, my salvation, my hope is in the Lord. Amen?